Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NY Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, as always, I am Adam Lowther. And, uh, you know, I was born that way, and I've been that way my whole life. And I guess I'm still Adam Lowther today. And today we have with us a great guest. Uh, I think you'll personally enjoy his uh, East Tennessee accent as much as I do. That is, of course, one Mr. Ray Smith. He is, you know, he spent 47 years at Y-12. He's now the historian for the city of Oak Ridge. He's, you know, he's done a documentaries and he does a a vodcast on uh, the history of of the Manhattan Project, at least, you know, the Y-12 portion of it. And so today, of course, we're going to talk to Ray about Y-12 and Oak Ridge and its contribution to the Manhattan Project. With that, welcome to Nuclecast Ray. Oh, you bet. I'm glad to be here. So uh, besides uh, trying to turn nuclear topics into fun, we like to talk about nuclear history. And you, more than anyone, know the history of Y-12 and Oak Ridge. Could you start us at the very beginning and then move us to the present? Yes, I absolutely can. And, And as you know, we in Oak Ridge today, we're about 32,000 people. We have the Y-12 National Security Complex that hired has about 8,000 employees. We have the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, the largest, most diverse laboratory in the DOE system. And uh, they're running, I think, around 5,000 employees now. And then, of course, the cleanup's going on with UCOR. And uh, there's a lot of activity going on in Oak Ridge. <clears throat> the uh, small modular nuclear reactors that are being built. So there's a whole lot to say about what's going on today, but you ask about the history. So I'm going to back up and we're going to bring it forward. And then I'll be glad to answer any questions you have about about our history or about what's going on today and what the future looks like in nuclear energy. Okay, sure. back to the beginning. Uh, at, at first, this area in 1942 was a small rural community that had Oh, four or five small uh, little, a store, a church, and and a school in one situation. There was a community of wheat, which is to the west part of Oak Ridge. And then there was Robertsville, which is right in the middle of where the city of Oak Ridge is now, uh, right where Robertsville School is. And then there was New Hope, which is over where the Y-12 National Security uh, complex is located in Bear Creek Valley. And there was New Bethel, which is down <clears throat> in Bethel Valley, where the uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory is today. So these little communities were here and had been here literally, in some cases, over 100 years. So in the late 1700s, the white settlers started coming into this area. And uh, their, their families had pretty much been here for that period of time. 
But in 1942, they started looking for an area that might be available uh, for this new uranium thing that was being defined. They didn't know what it was at the point, but they knew they were going to need some uh, fairly large pieces of ground to, to do it. And uh, <clears throat> what, what really started it all is the letter that Leo Zillard wrote for Albert Einstein's signature. <clears throat> Albert, he knew that Albert would be recognized by President Roosevelt, and he didn't think he, <laughs> he probably would. So <clears throat> he had him to sign the letter. Now, the letter just said Germany's buying up uranium ore, and he thinks they're trying to build a bomb. And if anybody's going to have a bomb, the United States ought to be first. Now, Roosevelt understood that it was going to be an expensive undertaking. So he eventually General Groves was put in charge of the Manhattan Project in September of 1942. But <clears throat> Roosevelt also knew that he needed to put a lot of money into this. <clears throat> so he uh, called in Senator McKellar. And he said, Senator I need to put a large amount of money against the war effort, and I can't let the press or anyone know how much it is or what it's being used for. Can you help me with that? <laughs> Senator McKellar said, yes, Mr. President, I can do that for you. Just where in Tennessee are you going to put that thing? <laughs> now, that likely had more to do with East Tennessee getting selected for the Manhattan Project than any ridges and valleys, proximity to the Norris Dam, or any other thing that might have been considered. So that's how Oak Ridge got selected. General Groves came down here. He actually left the meeting early, came down here, spent the night in Knoxville, Andrew Johnson Hotel, and he came over and looked at the land, and he saw that it was good. It would be what he wanted. And he made the decision right then to go ahead and buy 56, ultimately as nearly 60,000 acres that were purchased from the community. Now, another Senator McKellar story, and I know this one's true because the man that it happened to just passed away within the last several months, Lester Fox. Lester was uh, the patriarch, if you will, of the, Oak Ridge, of the uh, uh, motor company, the uh, Fox Motor Company here in, uh, in Oak Ridge area. But in 1942, he was a sophomore in high school at Oliver Springs little community just north of Oak Ridge, and he was skipping school. Him and his buddy were playing the pinball machine, and when they got through, they were walking down the main street of the little town. They walked by the telephone office. Telephone operator leaned her head out and said, Lester, go get the principal. He's got an important phone call. <laughs> now, Lester's skipping school, but he does. He goes and gets the principal. Principal comes over and takes that phone call, comes back to the school, calls all the students together in an assembly and says, I've just gotten a phone call from Senator McKellar. He wants me to tell you to go home and tell your parents you're going to have to find another place to live. The government's going to take your property for the war effort. Now, Lester swears that's the way these 3,000 people first learned they were going to have to get off of 60,000 acres in order to make room for the Manhattan Project. Many of them didn't have automobiles. They didn't have trucks to move their belongings. If they had a car, they might not be able to buy gas for it or tires. Those things were rationed. What they did have is young men in the military getting killed, and they wanted to do anything they could to stop that killing and end the war. So they got off their property, many of them in a matter of days, just to make room for the Manhattan Project here in East Tennessee. Now, that's how it got started. That's the first 
thing that changed a little rural community into a, an industrial complex that's still vibrant here today. It went up to 75,000 people by, the, by August of 1945. So it's amazing. Built three sites here, the K-25 gaseous diffusion plant and also the S-50 thermal diffusion plant were all built out to the west end. And Y-12 was built in Bear Creek Valley to, uh, it was an electromagnetic separation plant to separate the uranium-235 from 238 that was going to be needed for Little Boy. And then over in Bethel Valley, the X-10 graphite reactor was built to prove that you can produce plutonium in a uranium reactor. Now, those concepts and ideas had never been done before. So it was something brand new and different being introduced into this rural community uh, of Oak Ridge, became known as Oak Ridge, uh, just actually just because it sits on the side, the city sits on the south side of Black Oak Ridge and also down in East Fork Valley. But uh, that's, that's how it got its name, just because it wouldn't, be, wouldn't call attention to anything. I mean, lots of ridges around here are named for trees. So that's how Oak Ridge got started. So can you tell us, you know, more about the the mission of Oak Ridge? You kind of yes. hit the highlights. So the mission of Oak Ridge during the Manhattan <clears throat> Project and right. then after. At first, Groves wanted to, he wanted a place. Uh, so he made that decision quick. Now, you know, I've heard that Groves would only give himself one hour to make the most difficult decision. I don't think we even understand the kind of decisions that he was making. Uh, I mean, none of this has ever been tried before. He was not a scientist. He was an engineer. But <clears throat> he was relying on people that had the knowledge and uh, was trying multiple ways to get to an atomic bomb. Uh, the uh, K-25 gaseous diffusion plant <clears throat> was being built at the same time that K-25, Y-12 was the first one that started in February of 1943. And then <clears throat> also in February of 1943, the X-10 graphite reactor was, was started. And it became, uh, nine months later in, in November, it was operational. And they got the first sample of plutonium out of that uranium reactor. Then they went out to Hanford, Washington, and built three reactors on the Columbia River that produced the plutonium used in the gadget and in Fat Man. The primary mission for Oak Ridge was uranium. Uh, in a thousand pounds of uranium ore, there's only seven pounds of uranium-235. Now, U-235 is what you need the, to make an atomic bomb. So they needed to separate that material. And uh, Ernest Lawrence had invented this thing they called a Kalutron. stands for California University Cyclotron. And it was built to physically separate isotopes by their mass or by their weight. Now, I'm going to show you real simple a concept that will help you to grasp how a calutron works. No moving parts, two very large magnets with a vacuum chamber in between. Now, think with me a minute. If I had two rubber bands hanging down from my hand, I put a golf ball on one and a ping pong ball on the other, and then I spun them real quick for a half a turn, that 
golf ball would stretch that rubber band further than the ping pong ball, and I would get two arcs. The same thing happened with uranium-235 and 238. If you put them in between those magnets, send that material in the bottom, the magnets cause it to bend, and when it bends, centrifugal force will make the 238 make a slightly larger arc than the 235. So you can catch that 235 up at the top. Now that's exactly how a calutron works. The only problem is, remember, a thousand pounds only has seven pounds of 235. So they had to separate a lot of material. They built 1,152 calutrons, put them in nine large buildings at Y-12 in Bear Creek Valley, and <clears throat> they had 22,482 people working in Y-12 alone in August of 1945, separating that material that was used in Little Boy that was dropped on Hiroshima on August the 6th, 1945. Now, the K-25 gaseous diffusion process operated differently. The way it operated is in a space the size of my thumbnail, there would be, in this barrier material, there'd be a billion holes, all same size, equally spaced, and that 235, being three neutrons lighter than the 238, would go through those holes just a little easier, a little faster than the 238. So if you did that 3,000 times, you'd begin to build up a higher percentage of 235. That's why they called it enriching 235. And the K-25 building was a mile long, half a mile on each wing, under 44 acre, on 44 acres of ground, largest building in the world at the time, under one roof. And it, it was they were getting it started, but they didn't have that barrier material ready yet. <clears throat> and Robert Oppenheimer learned that the Navy was experimenting with thermal diffusion. Now, the most difficult part of getting that uranium-235 enriched or separated is that first percentage to get it from seven tenths of a percent up to one two or three percent but the thermal diffusion could do that for them so they had the world's largest steam plant out at the k-25 site to do, to produce electricity for the three thousand pumps and motors that were going to be running when that process came online but the barrier wasn't ready yet so Oppenheimer told Groves, you need to build a thermal diffusion plant, build it right there by that steam plant, and, uh, and, and let's feed that material into those calutrons. So Groves went to the contractor and he said, I need to build a thermal diffusion plant. I need it built right beside this steam plant, and I need it in 90 days. <laughs> the contractor said, that's impossible. It can't be done. Groves looked them in the eye and said, you've got 80 days. <laughs> they, built it in, they built it in 76 days, operated it for about three months. And by feeding that material, that slightly enriched material into the first, the Y-12 beta calutrons, there were two stages of the calutrons, alphas and betas. And uh, then next, they fed it into the K-25 gaseous diffusion and then fed that gaseous diffusion output into the beta calutrons at Y12. And then by around June, last part of June and July of 1945, they were able to provide enough material for Little Boy, uh, the first atomic bomb ever used in warfare. Now, just one more little side thought. The way they transported that material, that uranium, 
from Oak Ridge to Los Alamos is they would put it in small gold lined coffee cup sized containers, a powder now, and put it inside a briefcase, lock it up, strap it to an army lieutenant's arm, dress him up to look like a salesman, put him on a passenger train up through Chicago, and that there they would meet another uh, lieutenant, they'd give it, transfer the, the package over, and he'd take it out to Los Alamos. Remember, Groves wanted things compartmentalized, so the people in Oak Ridge, they didn't know where it was going. They just knew they took it to Chicago. People in Chicago didn't know where it came from. They knew they were taking it to Los Alamos. But that's how the uranium for Little Boy got transported from Y-12 here in Oak Ridge to Los Alamos. Well, that's an interesting story. Well, unfortunately, we're at the time where we got to take a quick break. Now, when we come back, uh, we'll continue with Ray Smith. We're talking about the history of Y-12 and and Oak Ridge, and uh, we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Ray Smith. So, Ray, you were telling us the history, the, the question I had. So where where was the uranium mined and how was it brought to Y-12? That's an excellent question. <clears throat> There's a man uh, who owned the mines in the Belgian Congo. He, his name is spelt S-E-N-G-I-E-R. And, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, I'm going, I'm, I'm an old Southern boy and I mispronounce most everything. <laughs> <laughs> Sergey may be his name. I don't know. <clears throat> but at any rate, he knew that uh, Germany in the late 1930s, he saw that Germany was buying his uranium ore and he stopped selling it to him. For two years, he packaged that ore up and sent it by ship to New York City and put it in a warehouse on Stanton Island. Now, in 1942, when November 1942, that last part of the year, actually September, uh, when General Groves got put in charge of the Manhattan Project, Colonel Nichols was second in command to Groves at the time. And Colonel Nichols went to uh, Sergei and said, look, you've got some uranium mines and we need some ore. He says, I knew you were going to need it. I've already brought it to you. It's in a warehouse on Stanton Island. Now, one man decided that the United States would get his uranium and Germany would not. Think about it. History may turn on just such single decisions of single of individuals. And the unique thing about that ore, uh, ore that we have today coming out of Colorado or up in Canada, at, at best, that is about 1% uranium, very low uh, in uranium content. Some of the ore coming out of the Belgian Congo was as high as 60% wow. uranium. Very rich ore. And again, one man decided Germany should not have his uranium and the United States should. So that's how the uranium got, uh, got to the United States. And uh, it, of course, was processed 
and purified, and then the uranium uh, was sent to Oak Ridge and went through the calutrons and the gaseous diffusion processes here in Oak Ridge to produce the 235 that was needed for Little Boy. So as we, you know, the war is over, we've won the war. How does that change what goes on at Oak Ridge? Well, the interesting thing is there are two things that happened quickly. Uh, Well, three. The third one is the Cold War started, and that meant that we needed uh, more atomic bombs. And uh, the K-25 process, by December of 1946, uh, it was able to produce weapons grade without the need for the Y-12 calutrons. So there's nine buildings, 1,152 calutrons that are no longer needed. So they started pulling them out. And oh, by the way, there was a shortage of copper during the Manhattan Project. So they borrowed 14,700 tons of silver and brought it down and put it in the calutrons at Y-12 as electrical conductors. Colonel Nichols, again, went to uh, Undersecretary Bell in the Treasury Department and said, look, there's a shortage of copper. We need some silver. It's a good electrical conductor. We need it to use for the war effort. And we need several thousand tons. Undersecretary Bell said, Colonel, you don't understand. Here at the Treasury Department, we don't think of silver in terms of tons. We think of it in terms of troy ounces. Colonel Nichols figured on the back of his envelope and said, well, I need about 300 million troy ounces. (laughs) What he got was 14,700 tons of silver brought to Y-12 and made into electrical conductors, calls for those uh, magnets that were used in the calutrons. But again, uh, by uh, by December of 1946, those calutrons weren't needed, so they pulled them out took the silver back to the Treasury Department, but they kept them in two buildings. They kept them in building 9731, where, oh, by the way, today the world's only alpha calutron magnets are in building 9731 at Y-12, which is part of the Manhattan Project National Historical Park. And also they kept them in building 9204-3, Beta-3. There's two racetracks of Beta calutrons there, that were used up until 1998 to separate all of the isotopes on the elements in the periodic table. And some of them went over to the graphite reactor where they were made radioactive and used to produce nuclear medicine. So we've got Y-12 with buildings empty except for two buildings. And then we've got the X-10 graphite reactor. Again, it's beginning to be used for medical isotopes And there is a man named William Pollard, who was a professor at the University of Tennessee. He saw the value of that X-10 graphite reactor. And at the time, right after the war, they were beginning to to build and designate certain research facilities as national laboratories. They did one in Chicago, in New York, out in California. So he said, let's make this X-10 graphite reactor a national laboratory. Now, remember, this is in the South. It's in a rural area. It's not Chicago, New York, California. It was a struggle for him to convince the politicians that that should be done. He got 14 Southern universities to join a consortium where they made the recommendation that 
that universities could use this research reactor if the government would keep it. And they did. By 1948, they redesignated the uh, what was then the, the Clinton Laboratories and named it the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And it has grown tremendously over the years. It has the world's most powerful supercomputer, Frontier, fastest computer in the world. It has the most powerful pulse neutron source, the Spallatia neutron source and does an enormous amount of research on climate change, but also on things like, I mean, they were heavily involved in the COVID vaccine research. So it's, it's very central to all of the research that's being done in the nation today. That's the largest, most diverse laboratory that the, the lab has. Now, back to Y-12, sitting here with these empty buildings, the people out at Los Alamos, scientists, they didn't want to turn into a production facility and build more atomic bombs. So the Atomic Energy Commission, by this time, 1947, they, they said, look, we need these bombs, and we've got these buildings down here at Y-12. All of those secondaries came from Y-12. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we're reducing our, our stockpile now, so those weapons, those secondaries are coming back and being disassembled at Y-12. That's one of the missions. And of course, the other mission is to maintain the enduring stockpile of those active weapons that we have. K-25 operated up until 1985. The K-25 building itself stopped operating in 64. And then by 85 to 87 time frame, they shut all of the gaseous diffusion plant down. And it's now been converted, that area, into the East Tennessee Technology Park Heritage Center. And it's an industrial complex. Now, that's where some of those modular nuclear reactors, small modular reactors, are being built that I was telling you about at the very beginning of our discussion. So we've come full circle, if you will. And now we're doing some uh, research and, and demonstration of what I believe will be the next... Uh, and and the best uh, nuclear energy production will be the best thing that we have going for us in the coming years when we transfer from fossil fuels into the next technology it's going to be nuclear yeah so there's you know ray there's so much we haven't discussed yet would you continue this discussion with us and we'll we'll end up cutting this into two episodes We'll have a part one and a part two. Uh, oh, yes, I'd be glad. To. So let's let's go ahead and then continue the discussion. So as we think about, you know, we we move, you know, you've discussed sort of this this ramp up, and then we've sort of had this ramp down that took place at the end of the Cold War. You know, where we, you know, we ultimately had, I think, about twenty four thousand operationally deployed nuclear weapons. And eventually we said, okay, we, that's enough. And we, you know, we sort of reached that maximum amount. We thought we had enough enriched uranium. You know, we were producing plutonium. We thought we had enough. And then for Oak Ridge at that point, you know, you get to 1991 where the Cold War is over. President Bush says we're, we're going to dramatically cut our arsenal. And for Oak Ridge and for Los Alamos, Livermore, Sandia, you know, Kansas City plant, uh, you know, 
out in Washington, you have all, this entire nuclear enterprise on the DOE side that has to dramatically adjust. How did Oak Ridge, you know, sort of take this shock to the system and what did it do uh, in response to this sort of dramatic change? <clears throat> when the Cold War ended, there was, as you mentioned, a very dramatic change. I, I was actually responsible for maintenance at Y-12 at the time. And I can well remember when uh, I had to provide layoff notices uh, to individuals when the when the size of the workforce was being re reduced. Uh, a couple of things happened around that time. Uh, one, there was even discussion about transferring all of Y-12 out to the Nevada test site. And, of course, that, uh, that caught our attention here in Oak Ridge, <clears throat> and that was about the time when I started uh, promoting the history of Y-12 and making a lot of presentations, uh, giving tours, and trying to let the public know more about what uh, the importance of what Y-12 was doing. And, uh, and it, we also made an outreach across the nation to industry that could benefit <clears throat> from the technology at Y-12. Uh, we, uh, of course, back in the 60s, we had built the, the uh, lunar sample return container or the moon box for the Apollo program that, <clears throat> excuse me, actually brought the lunar material back uh, during that program. And we've been working with NASA all along for various reasons. But we, <clears throat> excuse me, we reached out to even more of the local industry and provided access to our technology. And uh, that was one of the ways that we maintained the, uh, the skills that we had and helped. Actually, we reached out to every state in the nation and provided help to some, uh, some industries uh, during that time. And then, of course, you started reducing those nuclear weapons and uh, bringing the secondaries back to Y-12. That meant that they had to be disassembled. Now, remember, we didn't build them to take them apart, yeah. so it, it's not an easy thing to do. But but it is being done at, at Y-12, and all of the nation's highly enriched uranium that's not in a nuclear weapon, a research reactor, or in the Navy's uh, ships and submarines. And by, what, by, by the way, Y-12 has produced and provided the highly enriched uranium for the nuclear Navy uh, ever since uh, uh, Captain Rickover at the time, Admiral Rickover, came down to the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, it was actually the Clinton Labs at the time, at the first research re or first reactor training school, and realized if you make a uranium reactor out of highly enriched uranium, you can make it small enough to go in a submarine. And that's how the nuclear Navy got its start. And K-25 and first, and then Y-12 now, it provides that highly enriched uranium needed for the Navy's uh, ships and submarines. Uh, K-25 had produced the highly enriched uranium for weapons up until 1964. And now we've just been recycling that highly rich, enriched uranium ever since. And of course, by taking the nuclear weapons apart, that material comes out and can be reused as necessary. So the uh, 
the impact of the ending of the Cold War was felt here in Oak Ridge for sure. But I think the adapted uh, methods of, of providing the skills and the technology that uh, other people could use that had been developed here for nuclear weapons uh, was a, a good way to transition through that. And now the uh, missions of Y-12, as I said, there are 8,000 people working out there. So the missions are strong and, uh, and continuing, and there's a, a, a good future ahead for Oak Ridge, both in the National Lab and the Y-12, uh, as well as other industry that are coming into the city. The small modular reactor is being built by Kairos Power, which out at uh, what was the old K-33 gaseous diffusion building site. So that industrial complex is being converted uh, from the gaseous diffusion plant into new technologies, some of them nuclear, some of them nuclear medicine, and uh, others that are, that are coming to the area. Well, normally we would end the show so because we're at that time where we're out of time. But I'm going to ask you to hang on with me. We'll, we'll end this show, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and record part two. But for you, the listeners, uh, we're going to go ahead and end part one. And, of course, I've got you on the hook at this point, and you're interested. And so I want to thank Ray, of course, for, for being with us today. And I want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of Nuclecast. And be prepared, because we're going to have a part two so uh, thanks for joining us and listen to part two. Well, we uh, so we had two episodes of Ray Smith. You know, when we originally went into it, it was going to be just one episode. But there, Ray was such a good storyteller and he had so much to tell. Uh, we often, you know, we focus on Livermore and Los Alamos and maybe even Sandia, but we don't really talk about Y-12 and Oak Ridge that much. So I thought this is worth two episodes. And so we sort of uh, made an audible, I called an audible and we did two. So I hope you enjoyed it. It was informative for me just on Oak Ridge and its contribution and, you know, how it all came to be. So hopefully you enjoyed it. I certainly did. And uh, uh, make sure you, you hear both episodes. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.